Welcome to On DoD on Federal News Radio 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com. Now, your host, Jared Serbu. Thanks for listening this week and a few different focus areas on this week's show. Later in the program, we'll talk with Thomas Modley, the Undersecretary of the Navy, about some of the management challenges he's working on just a couple months into his tenure. Also, how the Army's making major productivity increases in its headquarters units by doing a better job of tracking paperwork and tasks electronically. First up, though, on this week's program, Glenn Fine, the Defense Department's Principal Deputy Inspector General, is with us. He's currently the top official in the IG's office in the absence of a White House nominee to be the permanent IG. We'll talk in a few minutes about a new award the DOD IG has just earned, recognizing it as the most improved workplace in the federal government in terms of employee satisfaction. First, though, we're going to focus on what's undoubtedly the biggest single project on the IG's plate right now, the audit of DOD's consolidated financial statements. That work is now underway for the first time in the department's history. And Mr. Fine, thanks for joining us. And uh, I I want to talk about your office's role in this huge, huge process Um, for many, many years now, at least in terms of the consolidated financial statement. You guys have been issuing what are sometimes called derisively maybe same day disclaimers pretty short read now that the department has asserted that it is audit ready how, how does the process change for you and your folks well the department is now under full financial statement audit we are uh, overseeing or doing uh, more than 20 standalone audits throughout the department most of the department's um, uh, finances are under audit by either independent public accountants who have been hired to do this, overseen by us or by ourselves. We, we are the group auditor and will issue a uh, overall opinion uh, in, in November uh, based upon those standalone audits. And uh, so it is uh, the first time the department is under full financial statement audit. It is an enormous audit. It's probably the largest financial statement audit in history. Uh, there's more than 1,000 independent public accountant auditors who are working, and we have more than 180 uh, w- uh, overseeing them and doing the audit. So it is, it is a uh, challenging operation, but an incredibly important operation as well. Just to be clear on what you said a moment ago, would, would you expect that at the end of this cycle you end up issuing potentially another disclaimer or or do you wind up with some kind of opinion one way or the other with just potentially volumes and volumes of findings and recommendations we will have an opinion we are not we can't say what the opinion will be it will either sure. be a mo- unmodified opinion a modified opinion or a disclaimer of opinion and I think the key thing is not to necessarily focus on what the opinion is the first year because it will be very hard for the department the first year to get uh, an unmodified opinion. But what is important is that we and the independent public accounting firms find deficiencies, report them to the department, and the department take timely corrective action on them so that they make improvements in their financial uh, management, even if the opinion is not going to be an unmodified opinion, uh, at least in the first year. And what is also important to say is it needs to be a sustained effort. It's not going to happen over one year. The depart- we and the department need to stick at this to make improvements in the way the department manages its finances and its financial statements and that it correct the deficiencies that are inevitably going to be found. As to your office's specific role, I mean, you've got a lot of good people, but given the scale of the task, as you said, the bulk of the work is going to be done by these 1,000 independent public auditors. What What's kind of the division of labor between the government and the contractor side on all this? 
So as I said, we do some of the audits, but the, uh, the independent public accounting firms do 18 of them, but we provide oversight over the, the independent public accounting firms. We will travel to where they're located. We uh, verify that the audit is being performed in accordance with generally accepted government auditing standards. We review their planning documents. Sometimes we will even observe or re-perform a sample of their work to ensure that uh, we agree with the results, and we review the supporting documents. So we provide oversight over the independent public accounting firms who are doing uh, the 18 standalone audits throughout the department. But as far as your organic workforce, have you had to do anything in differently internally to get ready for this upcoming day when you're going to issue an opinion on, on, a, on an audit-ready series of financial statements and, and possibly one, one day, many years from now, an actual clean opinion? We have built up our workforce. We have hired additional auditors. We have we have had auditors do this, and so we're familiar with it and experienced at it and talented at it. But we needed more, and we hired more, and we are well prepared to provide that oversight that is important. The the audit side of the house in your office, of course, does audits every, every day, mm -hmm. financial and otherwise. And this gets back, I think, to your point about the audit as a management tool. What's you know to whatever extent. Is there a connection between, you know, some of their day-to-day -day work and the overall improvement of the department's management that might result from the from the large full-scope financial audit? I mean, for example, you guys just a couple days ago issued an opinion on on the Army where you found some internal control weaknesses that had to do with their civilian pay system. Once the full-scope audit is underway, I mean, is there a potential that some of those issues start getting addressed and don't have to get addressed in these narrow narrower scope audits Yes, the financial statement can have a very positive impact on the way the department is managed, not only the finances of the department, but how it's operationally managed. Uh, there are several important reasons why to do the, why we should do this full financial statement audit. One, uh, the Congress, the American people have a right to know how their money is being spent, and the Department of Defense has a huge amount of money. It's uh, $600 or $700 billion operating budgets, $2.4 trillion in assets. That's a lot of money, and it ought to be accounted for uh, properly. That's the first thing. The second thing is the financial statement has the ability to understand what the costs are of systems, whether there are cost overruns, and the ability to great, uh, to have a greater impact on detecting and deterring any waste, fraud, and abuse in, in, that, uh, in that money. It also does work uh, on, on the... In information technology systems that go behind the financial statement audit so that it has the ability to understand and improve the security of that of those systems as well. It also monitors for the accuracy of the information about the property of the department. So for example, with better financial statements, you will have a better sense of what property you have and what property you property you need. So you'll have better accountability for, let's say, spare parts and munitions. So you have the appropriate amount of spare parts and the appropriate amount of munitions so you can operationally perform your mission in an effective way. So it has tremendous impact on the operations of the department and the ability to allow the department to manage its critical operations in a better way. Uh, as for the independent public auditors, in addition to overseeing them, as I understand it, you're also the, the contracting activity in charge of hiring them. So I guess a couple challenges to ask about there. One, as you said, probably the biggest audit in history, or at least one of them. Is it a challenge to find enough qualified people to go in and do this work within DOD? And also, how do you maintain 
competition between, I think, really the relatively small number of firms who have enough people and experience to do these at the DOD component level? Well, there are some challenges because the pool of independent public accounting firms that can take on the auditing uh, work of the department's financial statement is somewhat limited. They must be independent of the DOD reporting agency, uh, which which can be challenging because some of the IPA firms have consulting contracts with the DOD reporting agencies, so they can't be involved. Um, additionally, they, the firms must have sufficient scale and expertise to perform an audit of a DOD component. But we, there are uh, many who have that. Uh, we have been successfully uh, hired uh, independent public accounting firms that have the experience and the expertise. We competitively awarded those contracts for all the ongoing uh, uh, fiscal year 2018 audits, and the the firms have provided sufficient resources to perform this the, these important audits. But this is an area we will continue to monitor. We'll monitor annually, as well as uh, through discussions and oversight of them to, to ensure that the IPAs, you know, have uh, consistent, independent auditors uh, performing uh, these critical audits. And along those lines, I think one of the challenges going forward is you're going to need, or at least it's desirable, to have multiple, for example, multiple firms who can compete for future audits of, let's say, the Army, so that there's not just one firm who has the expertise after having done it once and is going to have that work in perpetuity. That's exactly right. And there is some benefit to having... um, a firm that has experience and knowledge of, of the particular component, but you also want the ability to have competition, so there's not only one one place you have to go to get an independent objective audit of the financial statements of a component. All right. Big picture, as you see it, what are the biggest challenges the department is, is facing as of now in terms of eventually getting a clean opinion? I think there are several. One is just the large number of separate accounting and feeder systems for those accounting systems. Uh, another issue is reconciling the, the data between those various systems to ensure that they are accurate and consistent. Uh, another thing is providing timely documentation to support those transactions. Uh, another thing is to demonstrate there are effective internal controls over the systems and processes. So there's a whole series of challenges. I think a key challenge and a key thing that the department has done, however, is to ensure that the tone from the top is set that this is an important uh, endeavor, that it can have positive impact, and the department as a whole is committed to this. I know the leaders of the department are committed to this, and what's good also is that it's not simply the financial people in the department who are committed to it, but the operational people are also involved with this and recognize the positive impact that it can have and so therefore have provided the resources and the attention to this important effort. In terms of tracking everything that, that's going on, it seems to me one of the, one of the big innovations that happened lately is the the implementation of this this central computerized database where they go in and 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 keep track of individual notices of findings and recommendations and assign individual accountability to actually fixing those. How big a deal is that from your perspective? That's a very big deal and a, a very positive step. Uh, it allows the department to have visibility over the individual findings so it doesn't simply rely on a component taking uh, effective and aggressive action but you have uh, the for example the uh, chief financial officer and others in the leadership able to see what the notices of findings and recommendations are and what corrective action has been taken and whether there is uh, timely and effective corrective action so I do think that this is very positive and an important tool to help sure 
to, to help ensure that the department does take appropriate action on the deficiencies that are going to be found. Glenn Fine is the Defense Department's Principal Deputy Inspector General. Short break here, and when we come back, we'll talk about some of the internal management improvements the IG's office has been making over the past few years, why survey results show it's become a much better place to work. This is on DOD, on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbiv. Back on federalnewsradio.com at 1500 AM, I'm Jared Serbu. This is on DOD. Glenn Fine, the Principal Deputy DOD Inspector General, is still with us. We're going to change gears here from the DOD financial audit to some of the management improvements the IG's been trying to make with regard to its own internal operations. As of five years ago, the DOD OIG had some of the lowest employee satisfaction rates in the federal government. But since 2013, it's jumped 20 points in the Partnership for Public Services Index of the best places to work in government, including more than nine points in just the last year. The OIG is the recipient of a new award from the partnership. It's both the most improved IG office in the U.S. government and the most improved DOD component in the 2017 rankings. And Mr. Fine, the award, of course, was for a one-year improvement, but but part of the story here to me is really the sustained improvement that you've had over time. I mean, at least based on the partnerships index of the results, you guys were stuck way down in the lower 40s as of 2013. So it's a 20-point increase since then, including the 9.2% increase just in the last year. So maybe you can start us off a little bit from that perspective in terms of what you think has led to that again, sustained improvement, because a one-year increase may or may not actually mean that much. Yes, we have had a significant increase in our federal viewpoint survey scores as reflected by the Partnership for Public Services um, compilation of those scores. We've had it over time with a very significant improvement over the last year. We have put a lot of effort into engaging our employees. It matters. It's important to them. It's important to productivity. It's important to retaining talented employees. So we've tried to communicate more with them. We have tried a variety of ways up and down uh, the organization, and a lot of people are involved with this, from the senior leaders to the managers to uh, to the employees. We have created employee engagement councils and have um, asked for their ideas on how we can improve our processes. We've communicated with them. We have um, improved uh, communication by allowing uh, more junior employees to come to senior staff meetings. I try and walk around uh, the offices of the employees and visit the offices of the employees. For example, I've visited over 55 offices in the, in the two years I've been serving as the Acting Inspector General. And that tone of communication and that increased communication has been uh, improved by uh, a number of OIG uh, managers and employees, and it has been having an impact. And we are pleased that our scores have gone up, but we need to continue this effort. It is not, uh, as they say in NCAA basketball, just a one-and-done effort. We are committed to this, and we will continue this effort. Well, and you started, if I've got my years right, uh, in a leadership role at the DoD IG in, in 2015. Did, did you walk in with a sense of any systemic problems across the organization that, that it was facing at that time that was causing its stores, scores to be as low as they were, which were, was still in the 40s at that point? 
I think we needed to improve our communication uh, to ensure that um, we communicated in both directions, that the leaders of the, of the agency communicated, but we also heard uh, employees and listened to them and gave them feedback on their ideas. We have employee engagement councils, and we often get good ideas from them, and we try and implement them. Sometimes the ideas sound good, but we can't be implemented for a reason, and it's important to communicate with the employees about that. So I did, I did think that the communication uh, could be worked on, and, and we, just as we look at the Department of Defense and look to see how they can improve their processes, we need to look at ourselves and see how we can improve our processes, because it's a continual effort, because if you're not moving forward, you're going to be moving backwards. So we focused on that, and I think it's had a positive impact. That's a great point. Was that, I mean, was that a major, a major issue for you? As you say, you're constantly making recommendations to other DOD organizations. Did, did it feel in some ways hypocritical? That's probably not the right word, but not in a great spot to be if you're, if you're making critiques of other organizations when you're not in the best place yourself. I think to some extent that's true. We need to make sure that we don't suffer from things we are criticizing others for. So if we are making recommendations to others for improvement, we also need to look at ourselves to make sure we are making improvements as well. Uh, I've written an article uh, entitled this, uh, The Seven Principles uh, for Effective IGs, and one of them is we shouldn't cut corners ourselves. We need to constantly look at ourselves to make sure we are both uh, talking the talk and walking the walk, and that's what we've tried to do. Employee engagement is is a somewhat nebulous term. I just wonder what, if, if you can give us your definition of it and how, how you've tried to apply that throughout the organization. What are the most important aspects of it that you think have caused your scores to go up? Well, I, th I think when Max Steyer, who's the head of the Partnership for Public Service, came to the OIG and he gave us an award uh, for being the most improved among federal IGs in 2017 in our scores, as well as the most improved Department of Defense agency, he, he told us it's really important to understand that it's not just about happy employees, it's about whether the employees are engaged, whether they're going to give their discretionary energy to achieve the goals of the organization, because that's the most fundamental asset we have, our employee and, and this skills and the talents they, they bring. So we need to make sure that they're engaged, that they are communicated with, that their ideas are heard, and that they um, are, are, are shown and convinced that what they do matters, that it has a very important impact on the OIG and also on the Department of Defense as a whole. So that, that's what we've tried to accomplish. And did you work directly at all with the partnership to, to try and get after some specific strategies in this area? No, we didn't, but uh, we, um, we were pleased when they uh, recognized us as the most improved among federal IGs. And Max Steyer, to his credit, came to our, our, uh, our workspace and gave us the award and talked about the importance of, of this effort and the importance of employee engagement. And it was very positive and beneficial to hear from him. So improvement is, is great, obviously, but, but in terms of absolute rankings, you guys are still 229th out of 339 in the agency subcomponent category. So back to your earlier point, what's the strategy to keep improving to the extent that strategy is different from what you've done so far? The strategy is to continually look for ways so we can improve, ways so we can increase employee engagement, ways we can listen to their ideas and implement the, the most effective ones, and to make sure that it is a sustained effort, that we don't just do it one time, but that we continue to do it. I believe strongly in what uh, former Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, the most important thing in this world is not where you stand, 
but in what direction you're moving. And we are moving in the right direction. We need to continue to move in that direction. Looking at the rest of the, uh, the, the list, there are plenty of other OIGs that are actually doing great. Um, mm-hmm. Tennessee Valley Authority, DOT are, are right near the top of the list. I, I raise that just because I wonder if, if there's anything particularly different about running an OIG office. And are there, are there forums in, in SIGI or elsewhere where you and your brethren in the IG community talk specifically about how to do things better in, in your uh, area of work? Yes, we do meet on a regular basis. We have annual conferences and we try and learn from each other and, and share best practices and that is very helpful. And for example, the the Tennessee Valley Authority IG who has had high scores has talked about that and has uh, discussed what they do and, and how they do it. I do think it is especially challenging in the IG community and being you know in the OIG. It's um, an incredibly important mission. It's a challenging mission. We're not always the most popular people when we when we come up with our findings and recommendations we urge our folks to be tough but fair and to recognize how important the work is and how how you have to be independent and objective in that work we are going to be criticized uh, often we're accused of being too hard or too soft oh this is um, you're a junkyard dog you're a lap dog sometimes that happens in the same case so you're not always going to get the the positive reinforcement and the kudos that other entities might get, but it is an incredibly important mission and a challenging mission, and we try and do it to the best uh, that we can. To that point, and I think it's a really important point, as you say, you're not in a line of work that where you make a lot of friends outside of the organization by virtue of what you do every day. What are the best strategies in your experience to get employees to feel like they can overcome that <laughs> sense of hostility, if that's the right way to put it, and still feel like their work really, really matters? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a sense of hostility, but you're you're right. You know, I know that I'm not the most popular person in the Pentagon food court, for example. We try and do our jobs in a tough but fair way. We try and be open-minded. We don't pull any punches, and we recognize that uh, we need to take the facts and the evidence wherever they lead. If it leads to a, a report where the agency is doing well, we need to say that, and if they're not doing well, we need to say that as well. So um, it, it really does have a, uh, an important impact. We uh, talk about the impact we have and how we are making a difference, how we are making the Department of Defense, which is a critically important agency uh, to all citizens, we're making it better and they have, uh, and what, so what they do matters and that's what we try and impart to them. Yeah, and kind of along those lines, and I don't know if this is a logical leap or not, but I know one of your other priorities has been to get more of your workforce's work out into public view um, through, I think, fairly fairly active and aggressive proactive disclosure of some of the reports that we would not have seen in the past. Is that is that part of it? Do you feel like that has had an impact on, on making people feel like their work can be seen by the public and, and, and does matter? That may have an impact. I, I do think that is a core principle for an inspector general's office to be transparent. That that the uh, the public has and the Congress and and the agency has a right to know what is happening. Obviously, there are some things that are classified and can't be released. But our reports, our audits, our evaluations, our and and some extent our investigations uh, should be transparent to the extent they can be, rather than uh, waiting or dribbling them out in some fashion that we ought to release what we can in a in a in a, in a proactive way. Glenn Fine is the Defense Department's Principal Deputy Inspector General. He joined us by phone to talk about DOD's audit process and the Best Places to Work Award we've just been talking about. 
Another short break, and when we come back, how the Army's increasing its headquarters productivity with a new electronic task tracking tool. That's next on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbu. Thanks for listening to federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. This is on DOD. I'm Jared Serbu. And the Defense Department, of course, has been under congressional orders to cut its headquarters spending and boost its efficiency for several years now. The Army has found a way to do that simply by doing a better job of managing and tracking how information and tasks move around the Pentagon. Last year, it implemented a commercial off-the-shelf software suite it calls the Task Management Tool. Since then, officials say they've managed to cut the average time it takes to complete a tasker by 14 days. Late tasks have been cut by 33%. Joining us to talk about TMT are two guests from the Army's Program Executive Office for Enterprise Information Systems. Lieutenant Colonel Toy Frazier is the product lead for Army Enterprise Staff Management Systems within PEOEIS. And Gus Burnside is the deputy product lead for ASIMS. Thanks to both of you for joining us. And, um, uh, of course, I do want to talk to you about the problem set that you set out to solve here with TMT and what you've accomplished so far. But, Gus, just to start us off, for people who aren't familiar with how tasks and paper move around the Pentagon, talk for a second about what a tasker is. I mean, the, the obvious answer is that someone in some position of authority says, go do X and report back to me by Y date. But but what's what's the scope of what constitutes a task for your purposes here. So a task is any uh, any staff uh, question or process that leadership wants uh, resolve, i.e., be it a an award that has to be signed by a senior leader, or be it a publication that has to be reviewed, or be it a uh, uh, a request for information from from the staff. All right, fair enough. And, and how had that process been managed until now? And broadly, what were you trying to approve, improve on? So Gus will take it again. So HQDA had a, a legacy system uh, that, that allowed it to, to send taskers out, uh, but it had no way of keeping visibility on who had the task or how long the task was out there. What TMT brings to the table is a fully automated uh, system that allows the tasker to be tracked from cradle to grave, thus giving the leadership uh, full uh, transparency as to who uh, some of the holdups are or who are some of the folks that are getting their taskers in on time. So that leadership can go and look down into the process in a fairly deep way and figure out if there is a holdup where exactly it is rather than just sending another order down the chain to get this done. Is Is that fair? That is affirmative. So talk about some of the benefits that you've realized so far since since TMT went live. Okay, so what we've seen uh, to date is a reduction in uh, the time it takes for a task to be processed. Some of the reports we've seen is a 15.3% uh, decrease in late taskers, a 1.9% decrease in the average days taskers are late, and overall a 136 they decrease in the average time to complete a tasker. So a lot of significant benefits there, uh, allowing uh, taskers to be completed on time and with more efficiency. 
Is there any way to calculate cat, uh, cost savings with with the improved process and the improved tool set? I mean, obviously, you can you know multiply that the, the, those hour savings by you know the, the by time to get at some kind of cost. But the, I, I would assume there was some kind of business case done in advance um, in order to approve the launching of TMT. Were there any dollars associated with that or dollar savings? Uh, it's taken us uh, some time to do that. I mean. Uh... We just went live uh, in June of last year, and so uh, in, in order to give it a full uh, snapshot of uh, what the cost savings would be, uh, it would take us another couple of months to do that. But looking at one of our other customers, uh, they've seen a significant increase in staff productivity over by 25%, some cost benefits from uh, centralized hosting uh, in, in the vicinity of uh, $2.2 million. Yeah, you want to talk a little bit more about who those sort of non-Army customers are? And I think that's important in the context of the fact that taskers in DoD often cross organizational boundaries. So ASIMS uh, currently has only uh, Army customers, uh, HQDA being our first customer, Army Forces Command at Fort Bragg, uh, Army uh, Reserve Command at Bragg, and uh, U.S. Forces Korea are off. for present uh, customers. And you talked earlier about visibility in terms of leadership being able to see exactly where the holdup is in any given tasker. Does does it also give you the ability to, to look down into an individual office or, or person and say, wow, this person's got a lot of tasks on their plate. This person has not very many. Let's redistribute the workload a little bit. That's a very good question, and I think uh, TMT does present itself to do that. We haven't looked that closely at it, but uh, based on some of our discussions uh, with uh, with our customers, uh, mainly HQDA, they do see the benefit of being able to do just that, to see where management can redistribute uh, the workload. Uh, how, how broadly deployed is TMT across uh, HQDA and the Army right now? How much more do you have to do before it's, I guess, fully implemented, or is it now? So Headquarters Department of the Army is fully uh, implemented. Uh, there are several other Army uh, organizations below HQDA, i.e. United States uh, Army Europe, uh, United States Army uh, Forces uh, Europe is also using TMT, but they are not centrally hosted uh, with ASIMS at, at Altez. In the future, we look towards uh, bringing on uh, in the vicinity of uh, eight to ten new customers or new army organizations uh, each fiscal year, topping off somewhere around uh, forty thousand uh, TMT users throughout the uh, United States Army. Is that the long-term vision, though, to have the 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 entire enterprise using one centrally hosted instantiation in kind of a, a software as a service model? Uh, in a sense, yes. But what we will tell you is. Uh, TMT was only mandated for HQDA, and so subordinate units, uh, the HQDA elected to onboard themselves uh, to the system. And so what we have uh, and, and, and what our attempts were to, to somehow try and save the armies a lot of money by centrally hosting it. And so what we have is, yes, a software as a service, but it's a customer-funded software as a service application. 
Got it. And back to my earlier question about taskers that cross cross organizational boundaries. Is, is there any benefit when, for a particular tasker that comes from, let's say, OSD, that that HQEDA has to respond back with a data call or 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 go do of some sort, or do you have to use a legacy process of some kind if a particular tasker is not entirely within the army? So OSD has a similar application uh, of TNT, highly customized. Uh, called uh, CADMS, and TMT at the HQDA level totally uh, uh, syncs with uh, with CADMS. So we're able to receive a task from OSD, send it out to uh, subordinate organizations, and have a response back seamlessly without having to take it out of something else, put it into something else, and then return it back into CADMS. So TMT and CADMS are very uh, compatible. And then it sounds like the the originating entity at OSD would have would have visibility into the entire army process as well if it's something that's relevant to them. Absolutely. Okay, so now that you are fully deployed across Army headquarters, and as you said, Gus, a few other Army entities have picked up TMT as well. Where do you go from here? What's what's next for the program? So right now, uh, ASIMS is working uh, a couple of things. Uh, the formal uh, process for us is to somehow make this a formal enterprise solution for the Department of the Army. We are looking and complying with the Army's uh, consolidated data center policy by centrally hosting TMT at a centralized hosting center. And then uh, we're, we're working on a enterprise system level accreditation because anything that goes on a, uh, an Army network has to be accredited uh, and meet all the cybersecurity certifications. We are just about 80% there. We hope to have our certification completed sometime in June of this year. Again, talking with Gus Burnside. He's the Deputy Product Lead for Army Enterprise Staff Management Systems. Also on the line with us is Lieutenant Colonel Toy Frazier. He's the Product Lead for ASIMS. And Colonel, anything to chime in on here with with regard to TMT that we haven't talked about yet? I think uh, the big thing is that Again, uh, the capability is there to help support uh, HQDA uh, staff management, uh, make sure the processes run smoothly, make sure they have accountability of where those t- those tasks are and how you know how they come in, how they track them. Um, so it, it, it allows HQDA, the Army, to be efficient in business uh, each and every day. Uh, the old way of, of printing off paper. Uh, has now made it easier for, from the electronic uh, standpoint, of just being more efficient, uh, saving money, um, and, 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 and uh, having the business processes in place uh, to to keep the army uh, running smoothly. Yeah, and actually, that raises another thing I should have asked earlier. Where where exactly in the process do all these time savings come from? I mean, why why did the legacy process? take longer as as a general matter? Is it just a matter of things get lost and people are not following up on tasks if they're not tracked as well? I think so. I think uh, when you when normally when they do a, a task or, you know, you, you send it out and it gets, gets, sometimes it gets lost out there. Um, but I think with the TMT tool, it, it allows you to have that accountability, right? Because NAS electronically is sent out it gives you a a a a, a day t- uh, daytime group uh, when that tasker needs to be uh, completed. Um, it, it gives you ownership of that tasker, um, and and it allows the the the, the tasker uh, to be tracked through its process. 
so you know where where at in the in the process that the tasker is is at, and so it, it allows that accountability. So it allows the senior leaders to know uh, where those taskers are and who's not who's not meeting or cutting the mustard on making sure those taskers are completed in a timely fashion. Um, so uh, and I guess in the old system, you know, you had. I mean, it was tracked, but it it wasn't it didn't have that accountability because it could be where someone could say, "Hey, I didn't get that tasker, you know, or I didn't see it." But on the TMT, you you just can't say that because now it's given to you, and that person who sent that tasker to you has a tracking mechanism. So when you when when that person gets that tasker and opens it up, it automatically generates that hey, that person seen it, and now you can track as that person holds that tasker. Interesting. Yeah, I guess you'd call that non-repudiation for for tasks. One thing that comes to mind also is, I I understand this is basically a COTS product that you're implementing here. How much modification have you had to do or do you expect to have to do before you get to the, the program of record stage? Um, well, I don't see any any, any uh, a lot of customization on it. I think what we have is a tool. There may be some minor adjustments uh, to fit the Army's uh, uh, business processes, but nothing major. I don't see anything major uh, because it's doing what it needs to be doing now. It's tracking that task and making sure accountability uh, of that task and that we that the Army is not taking long periods of time to accomplish a task. Uh, and I think Gus mentioned it, the time frame of, of taskers being uh, completed has went down tremendously since TMT. Um, so I don't think it's a lot of customization. I think, uh, you know, according to the business processes that uh, the Army and some of the other customers within the Army develop, I think uh, we'll, we'll meet the, uh, the goal of TMT. That's Lieutenant Colonel Toy Frazier, the product lead for Army Enterprise Staff Management Systems. Gus Burnside, the deputy lead for ASIMS, also joined us to talk about the new task management tool. One more break, and when we come back, Thomas Modley, the new Undersecretary of the Navy, is with us for a few minutes. This is On DoD on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM. I'm Jared Serbu. Back on federalnewsradio.com and 1500 AM, this is On DoD. I'm Jared Serbu. And in our final few minutes this week, it is, of course, budget season, as the Defense Department briefs its 2019 proposal on Capitol Hill. Meanwhile, at least as we go to air, it's still waiting for Congress to pass a fiscal 2018 budget. For the Navy, those two budget years are about rebuilding readiness, and at least the beginning of a push to start increasing its capacity to an eventual goal of a 350-ship fleet. Thomas Modley is the Undersecretary of the Navy, relatively new to the job, sworn in just in December. He talked about these issues with Federal News Radio's David Thornton. We're marching towards a more normalized type of a budget process. Um, every indication is that we will get a normal budget uh, in 18. And uh, the, the approach to fixing the readiness problem started uh, a year or so ago. Uh, in FY17, we already started uh, moving towards improving readiness. We're continuing to do that in the FY18 uh, budget. And then FY19 and beyond are really focused on sort of uh, adding uh, capacity and, and building out capabilities. So it's a, it's a, it's a progression. Uh, Secretary Mattis' uh, priorities when he came in the building were to focus initially on improving the readiness problems. And uh, so we're addressing those, and, and then we'll move on to more uh, forward thinking with respect to capacity uh, in the future budgets. 
So the capacity push won't be is not immediate. Well, it start. It's well. It is. I mean, it's starting now. I mean, we, we're, we as we look out uh, over the horizon, we are driving towards a more aggressive shipbuilding for the Navy. Anyway, we're driving for a much more aggressive uh, shipbuilding schedule uh, to get to a uh, current fleet of 282 ships to something in the 320 or so range uh, in the mid 20s. Um, so that's going to require us to step up that, uh, that, that capacity. Our industrial capacity is, is available and ready to do that. So, uh, so that's what we're going to see in the, in, the, in the next several years. There's been a lot of discussion recently about the shrinking recruitment pool for the military. Uh, I've heard figures like 25% or 3 in 10 of the general population are eligible for service. And with the improved economy, fewer young people are looking to military service as their primary option. What plans does the Navy have to reach these increased force goals? Well, this is a big concern for everybody here. There's a couple of factors at play here. One is that uh, there is there is a bit of a, di- a, a sort of a growing disconnect um, between the general population and the people who have ser- who serve in the armed forces or who have served in the armed forces. Um, in 1995, like 40% of, of youth in the age of 16 to 24, 40% of those people had parents or a parent that had served in the military, now that number is around 15%. So you don't have that sort of, autom- that, that, and that was one of our great recruiting things. Um, it was, you know, sort of family legacy and, and an understanding of what service meant, and a lot of those kids in those age groups, you know, grew up near or around military bases, so they understood it, and they understood what the sacrifices were like. So it's difficult. So we're we're, we're going after uh, a narrower pool, and then we also have a, an issue on the other side with the eligibility of, of um, recruits. We have challenges with respect to health problems that have been identified, uh, physical fitness, education, and you know, and criminal problems that uh, that don't meet the standards that we have. And we don't want to change our standards. We want to keep our standards high, and in fact, maybe even increase our standards going forward because the challenges of the future force are going to be uh, are going to be much more difficult and dynamic and so we need really 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 sharp uh, people to be able to handle those challenges so it's a big issue for us uh, it's one that we're looking at seriously um, we're looking at a variety of different ways to uh, to to help get uh, more in tune with that population uh, so that we can attract them to service. But I think also the country generally has to start doing a better job in education uh, at all levels uh, to, to, to generate uh, the pool of people that, uh, that can serve and can serve in a highly technical environment that we're going to be in. And I also think, you know, you're seeing statistics on obesity that are, are much higher now um, than they were 20, 30 years ago. And these are all societal issues that, you know, we have to deal with. But uh, the biggest challenge for us is that we do not want to decrease our standards. Uh, we have to actually probably increase our standards in order to get the types of people that we want. You say you, you want to increase standards possibly, uh, but I know in the past couple of months the Navy uh, reduced requirements on things like visible tattoos and uh, hair color, I believe. Um, and I know the Air Force has been looking at reduced physical requirements for certain jobs, like cyber, for example. Uh, any plans along those lines? How yeah, I mean, th- I, I don't necessarily, I mean, I don't think we're talking about the same types of standards. So things like tattoos and, and that, that has more to do with uh, uh, sort of discipline, disciplinary things. But, you know, there is, 
their, their tattoos are now a part of the culture, um, and it, those don't necessarily impact how a person can handle a job or the types of jobs that we want them to do. So there has been some determinations that you know perhaps we can be more lenient on things like that. Um, but the things that we can't afford to be lenient on are are the other issues which I talked about, which you know how 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 educated are they, how physically fit are they. Um, certainly, there are some there are some career paths that may not require the same level of physical fitness, um, but uh, these are all things that we're going to be looking at. Thomas Modley is the Undersecretary of the Navy. A short excerpt there from his conversation with my colleague David Thornton. You can find David's story based on their full interview at federalnewsradio.com. Earlier in the program, we talked with Glenn Fine, the Principal Deputy DOD Inspector General, about DOD's first-ever financial audit and the leaders of the Program Office for Army Enterprise Staff Management Systems about making the Army's paper flow more efficient. If you missed those conversations, we'll post this week's full program at federalnewsradio.com slash on DOD. You'll also find it in our podcast feed. Subscribe to On DOD on Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. That's it for this week's edition of On DOD. Thanks as always for tuning in. I'm Jared Serbu. So long. You've been listening to On DOD with Federal News Radio DOD reporter Jared Serbu. If you missed any part of this program, you can hear the entire show or any of our weekly programs anytime at federalnewsradio.com. On DOD, only on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM and federalnewsradio.com.